Acts chapter number nine. As we come into this passage, one of the reasons I thought this works out well, regardless if it was this week or next week, is that as we come to verse number 23 of this passage, there's actually a gap between verse 22 and verse 23. Sometimes if you don't have the outside, um, if you don't study some of the other passages of scripture, you don't see this as clearly as specifically. But there's actually about a three-year gap between verses 22 and 23. See, what had happened in Acts chapter number nine is there was a man by the name of Saul. Saul was a persecutor of the church, meaning this. He would go from city to city to city to city, mostly Jerusalem and then the suburbs, and he would arrest the followers of Jesus and turn them over to the authorities. Some were killed. Many were imprisoned. And he, the Bible uses the the phrase, wreaked havoc of the church. Wreaked havoc of the church. When you think of the phrase wreaking havoc, what comes to your mind? There's chaos, right? Creates chaos within the body, within the church. And so this early infant church, a man by the name of Saul is coming in, arresting, killing, doing away with men and women who are following after Jesus, who have turned to believe in him alone for salvation. And so Saul is going about all these things. And then he goes to the leaders and he says, hey, As we've been persecuting, I'm hearing that many of these Christians, many of the people of the way is what they're calling them at this time, they have gone out to Damascus. They fled Jerusalem to go to this other city. And so Saul says, hey, I want your permission to go here and to enforce our laws and our rules in Damascus. So he gets a letter from the leaders of the uh, Jewish faith there in Jerusalem. They say, go, you have our blessing. He takes men and he goes out towards Damascus. On the way, Jesus interrupts him. He sees this vision. He hears a voice. Um, He is blinded for a few days as Jesus comes to him and says, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? reveals himself in this incredible way. Saul goes to Damascus. There he meets a man by the name of Ananias. He receives his sight after three days of blindness. And in the middle of all of that, Saul has begun to grow in his faith. Even when we look at um, the verses right before, verses 21 and 22, they look and they're amazed. They said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul, verse 22, increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so what we find is we find this conversion and we find this, this man, Saul, going to the Jewish leaders and going and debating and proving Jesus through the scripture. After this verse, about three years have passed. Um, He tells us this, if you go over to the book of Galatians, Paul tells the churches in Galatia um, that he had gone from Damascus out into the wilderness in Arabia before returning again to Damascus. And in in these years that now have elapsed, this is um, Saul's seminary, if you will. This is the time that Saul grew in his understanding of Jesus his understanding of the scriptures interpreted through the lens of Christ. And so after these wilderness years of Paul, Saul, soon to be Paul, he comes back into Damascus. When he comes back into, the, into Damascus a few years later, which this is where we find verse 23, when many days had passed, 
the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And so in the middle of this, as he comes back to Damascus, as God leads him back to preaching and teaching the word of God, as this time of growth and study has ended, he brings him back into the middle of this. And what does he come back to? He comes back to men looking for him and plotting to kill him. So what we find is we find this persecution that Paul had once engaged in, he is now the victim of. We could say that Paul or Saul here, we'll probably use his names interchangeably, he's still called Saul here later when he ministers more to the uh, Gentiles and the Greeks. He goes by the name Paul. It's a more uh, Greek version, Hellenized version of the name Saul. But what we see first is we see that as Saul was troubled on the outside, that the inside remained steadfast. Today, uh, we're about to get into gifts of the gospel that we're going to see within this passage, and I'm excited to do so. As we begin, I want you to keep this in mind. Don't allow what happens outside of you to determine what happens inside of you. You hear me? Don't allow what happens outside of you to determine what happens inside of you. As we find Saul, as we enter into this moment, Saul is what? He's facing persecution. There are those that would seek to take his life. They want him dead. And as this is all taking place, what's going on within Saul? We don't know every details of the thoughts that are going on in his mind, but this is not the last time that Saul would face persecution. And in fact, one of my favorite writings of Saul was the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is a, a letter to, church, to the church in Philippi, a Greek city. He writes it from a city that you would probably be familiar with, Rome. And in Rome, he is under arrest. He's writing while imprisoned. And this is the same time, this is the same book where he writes and he says, he says what? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. If we imagine Saul sitting on a, uh, on a, just a, a soft bed, if we imagine him with all the amenities and the comforts, then we would say, wow, that's easy for you to say. But knowing that these words come from a man who himself was imprisoned and not able to leave this space, one who was facing the end of his life in the near future, and we read these words, count it all joy, and then what he goes on to say, he actually goes on to write um, what some have called the most uh, misapplied verse in all of the Bible, Philippians chapter 4, verse number 13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what's incredible about the context of that verse? It's not about being able to go out. We hear it from professional athletes and things like that. Ah, I can do all things through Christ. So I'm going to make this, uh, I'm going to make this touchdown pass. In fact, I read one satirical article one time that said two Christian school football teams play game for days as each one claims Philippians 4.13. Because each one is praying, God, I can do all things through you. So overtime just kept coming and coming and coming. That's not how it works. What is he speaking of? Well, just before he writes this verse, he says, I know how to abound. I know how to have everything. I know how to be loved. I know how to be the man. And I know how to be abased. 
I know how to have nothing. I know how to be despised. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so what we find is we find Saul, later known as Paul, writing these words and reminding us really clearly that we cannot allow all of the stuff outside of us to affect what's happening inside of us. And so here, as he writes, or as he's recorded in Acts chapter number 9, he has people literally trying to kill him. Literally trying to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And so while the spies were there at the gate, ready to sound the alarm and say, oh, there he is, there's Saul. His disciples take him to a place hidden from the gates. There's an opening, probably a home that was located within the wall itself and lowers him down outside of the wall so he can flee for his own safety. As we come into the meat of the passage we're going to be in today, what we're going to find is we're going to find a church that was persecuted. And when I say church here, I mean capital C, big picture church. We're actually going to find churches located in three different cities, believers located in three different cities. But what we're going to find is that in each of these churches, there are different things taking place. There's persecution that's happening, the same that happened to Saul there in Damascus. There's persecution that's taking place. But even in the middle of this, God is doing a work through his people. And so when we believe the gospel, God doesn't want us to stop with the, the, the just salvation. Oh, I've believed and now I can go to heaven. Okay, great. You're missing out on the abundance of life that's promised to you through Jesus Christ. And so as we come into this, as we look at these gifts of the gospel, I want you to see what's taking place in verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And so this is a really interesting thing happening here. So this is years later now. But remember, Saul was making havoc in the Jerusalem church. He was causing a mess in the Jerusalem church. There were people, these disciples, there would be people that they would have known. Some of them, some of them likely themselves were arrested under Saul's watch, right? There's only a few years. So there's some who would say, this, that's, the guy, that's the guy that kicked down my door and drug my parents out or drug me out. I don't want anything to do with that guy. I can't trust that guy. And what happens in verse 27? Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he comes and he says, no, 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 no. Yes, this was that guy, but something's different about him. God has changed him. He met Jesus, and his life is totally different now. And so he comes and Barnabas, uh, Barnabas, you might remember that name if you were with us when we read through Acts chapter number five. He was the giver of this gift, uh, this land that was sold and then given to the church. His name, it means the son of encouragement, likely a nickname. This is the encourager in the Bible. And he tells the apostles, he says, listen, listen, listen. My friends up in Damascus, they've told me, man, 
you're not going to believe what's happening in this guy Saul's life. He is preaching and he is teaching the word in ways that we have never seen. And it's incredible. People are coming to Jesus and it's through Saul. You know, the guy that was arresting and killing Christians. He's the one preaching. Isn't that amazing? And so here we find this incredible story and this incredible testimony of Barnabas. And what we find is in verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. The Hellenists being uh, these Greeks, they were speaking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. And so uh, Saul is, um, Saul has a unique gift, doesn't he? Uh, we find two cities back to back where Saul has found people that want to literally murder him. And so here, the church, what do they say? They say, okay, all right, we need to get him out of here. So they sent him to Tarsus. Tarsus, if you're not aware, is actually his home, his hometown. And so Saul goes back to his hometown of Tarsus. But watch what happens here. As the Hellenists, they're, they're seeking to kill him. There's persecution taking place within the church. I want you to follow me in verse number 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Figure that out. Hey, we got to get rid of, we got to send this guy to a safe place because they're coming to murder him and all the churches had peace. Does that sound like peace to you? Is this your definition of peace? It's only one group of people trying to kill him. Is that peace in any definition, in any way, shape, or form? What kind of peace then are they talking about if there's actual literal persecution happening within the church? Well, this is an internal peace. This is a peace within the body of believers. This is a peace that can be had regardless of the outside circumstances. And watch, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplied. But I want you to understand how peace comes about. Why is this church able to have peace? Well, we see it right there in that very end. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You see, someone walks in the fear of the Lord, what are they doing? They're growing in their knowledge and their understanding of God. This is not a fear in the sense of uh, I am afraid of, but this is a fear in the sense of a reverence and awe that comes as we know God and we understand who he is. But as we understand who God is, as we know God more and more and more, when God becomes big in our lives, the things that people can do to us become small. Even even to the point of death. As Saul would later write, he would say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He says, oh, they want to kill me? Okay, well, you know what? There's part of me that kind of hopes they succeed, because that would be great, but I think God still wants me here for the time being. So I will continue to be here for your sakes, is what he says. And so I want you to understand this about peace. Peace comes from believing what God knows or even what God declares to be true. Peace comes from believing the things that God says to be true. You see, the scripture says, great peace have they which love your law. 
That's David writing in the Psalms. Peace comes through those who love the word of God as we seek out the word of God, as we place our affections and our attentions into the word of God. We can look at circumstances that surround us and we can see it being, we can see the topsy-turviness that exists in our culture. And you know what? It can even be tempting for us to opt into that and say, wow, what a world and things are falling apart around us and the sky is falling. But can I tell you this? I don't think that uh, chicken little Christians get very far in their spiritual life because the scriptures tell us that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. That's why over and over and over again, the scriptures tell us to set our affections on things above, to bring all of our thoughts captive to Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, we find that what we think and what we see determines what we feel and what we believe. But our culture tells us, you can turn on, I was going to say the Disney Channel, but I guess it's Disney Plus now. I don't know if my kids know there's a Disney Channel. And you can hear, follow your heart, be true to your heart. I feel this way. And understand this, emotions make great servants and horrible masters. What we feel, we must bring into subjection to what we know to be true. And how do we know what truth is? How do we understand what truth is? The word of God. The word of God. And so here we find this early church. It would have been easy for them to look around and say, oh man, they're coming for me next. Hit the panic button, eject, I'm out. But instead, what happened? They're at peace. Why? Because they're following and believing what God has already declared to be true. And so we find the first gift of the gospel is the gift of peace. The gift of peace. Understanding that no matter the circumstances around us, we can continue to follow after Jesus. I want you to keep going with me here. We're going to turn the corner just a little bit. And we're actually going to turn our attention from Saul just for a couple chapters. So for us, it'll be a couple weeks. And we're going to look at Peter. Peter was a follower of Jesus himself. So for three years, Peter followed Jesus physically on the earth. He was a disciple of his during that time. Peter was uh, known for being the guy who um, talked too much. And Peter said a lot of dumb things. So if you can relate to Peter, welcome to the club. But God gets a hold of Peter and does some incredible things through Peter. And so first, what we find here in verse 32, as Peter went here and there among them all, and so he's going from churches to churches in the area, believers to believers, ministering and Uh, helping them to hear and to understand the word, to grow in the gospel. He came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. So now we find Peter meeting this man who's been bedridden for eight years. Eight years. Uh, You may know someone who's been bedridden, who's not able to get up and have full mobility. Even today, we have certain technological advancements that, that minimize so many of those things. But here we have this man, Aeneas, for eight years. You you want to know where to find him? He's going to be in his bed. There's nowhere else to go. 
and he didn't even have Disney+. Plus. What we find is we find Peter coming in. We find Peter saying, rise, make your bed. Why? Because Jesus Christ heals you. One of the incredible things of Jesus' time here on this earth was his healing ministry. Jesus went from person to person to person. He fed, he healed, he did miracles. Why? He was pointing back to himself in all of this. He was saying, hey, listen, I'm feeding you physically, but also at the same time, watch, I'm the bread of life. I'm coming to you and you're sick and you're dying, but I'm the great physician. And so over and over again, and then what we find in the first century is we find that many of those who had been followers of his also continue in this work. Those first disciples, before the word of God is written and propagated the way that we have it today, they're, they're participating in this ministry that Jesus had begun. And so here, uh, Peter comes and Peter says, hey, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. But understand today that the gospel of Jesus Christ heals us as well. The gospel of Jesus Christ heals us as well. And one of the things that I see in our world today, and I'm not speaking just within our church, I'm speaking within churches broadly, is we want to apply the word of God. We say, oh man, they could be healed through the word of God. But you know who the worst patients often are? Doctors, nurses, themselves. <laughs> the people who are practicing healthcare are often the worst ones when it comes to being a patient. So it can be with us Christians, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ heals. But we have to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves. I'm not merely speaking of placing our faith in Jesus. Many times as we talk about the gospel, we think, oh, believing the gospel, I can be saved from my sin, and I can be born again, I can be brought into the family of God. And yes, all those things are true, but that's not the end of it. You see, the gospel is also an incredible healing remedy for us and for our souls. The gospel is also the thing that helps to make us whole again. We can be very quick to apply the gospel to others, but healing comes as we apply the gospel to ourselves. Healing comes as we apply the gospel to ourselves. You see, when we look at the struggles and the heartbreak that others endure, we see others that face disappointment, discouragement, hardships. Oh, man, Jesus loves them, and Jesus, oh, if they would just lean on him and rest in him. And then when we get discouraged, and when we get heartbroken, and when we get disillusioned, or when things happen in our lives outside of our control, do we do the same thing? You see, the gospel in this sense is sort of like uh, if, you, um, if you jump on an airplane, they give the whole spiel at the beginning, right? Um, and they talk about how to buckle your seatbelt like you've never seen a car before. Um, and they tell you not to stand up unless the sign is there. And they tell you not to go smoke in the commode and whatever, right? And then they say, they say, they say what? They say if the, if the cabin depressurizes, above your heads will fall down Oxygen masks. And then what are the, what's the instruction they always give? Help yourself before you start helping others. Help yourself before you start helping others. Now, should you help others? You, gotta, you, know, you have someone beside you who's not able to help themselves. Should you help them? 
Yeah. But if you pass out while you're helping them, you're no good to either of you. Apply the gospel to yourself. Apply the gospel to yourself. You see, we often look at the gospel, um, and I think this is true across Christianity. We look at the gospel as being the beginning of a spiritual journey. And certainly, it is the beginning of our spiritual relationship with God, of believing the gospel, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. That's our entrance into the family of God. Absolutely. But it's also the growth in the journey and the end of the journey. It's, It's the whole of it. We don't outgrow the gospel of Jesus Christ. But sometimes, if you're like me, sometimes it can be easy to kind of, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. And what we do is subconsciously, we don't do it on purpose, but we set the gospel on the shelf. And I need the gospel and. I need Jesus and. I need. But listen, Jesus ought to be not just the first priority in our life, but the first and only priority in our life. Everything else hangs on him. And so if we're not believing the gospel ourselves, what are we doing? Not only do we see gifts of the gospel, including peace, healing, but watch with me in verse number 36. Now there was in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha. So it's the third city we saw, well, Damascus initially, but then we meet the church in Jerusalem again. We meet this church in uh, Lydda, and then we meet this church in Joppa. So in Joppa, there's a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I'd go by Tabitha too. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And so, so what kind of woman is she? What's she known by? She's known by her good works and charity. In those days, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So they're beginning the burial process here with Tabitha. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside, widows, excuse me, windows. Good night. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And so what are they doing? They're saying, oh, we can't believe this. These are the mourners that are here. They're weeping over Tabitha, over Dorcas. They're showing all these things that she had made, her generosity. But Peter put them all outside. So she would get out, knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. You see, as we look at this, as we see this story of Tabitha, isn't this an incredible picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ? See, all of us were born in sin. And the Bible doesn't say just born in sin, we're born dead in sin. Far from God, removed from, incapable of gaining salvation on her own. You see, when Peter spoke to Tabitha and said, arise, did Tabitha have any ability to arise? 
Next time you are at a funeral, go up to the casket and say, so-and-so arise. Don't do that. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Okay? Very inappropriate. Don't do it. But can you just imagine the scene? What's going to happen? All the family that's sitting there mourning, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, please, would you please leave? That's what will happen next. But here Peter goes in. He says, Tabitha, arise. Whoa, whoa, who, who is doing the arising? Well, this is the work of God once again in the life of Tabitha now. And not only does, does, does God have the ability to heal and bind up our wounds and our brokenness, but he has the ability to take dead people and to make them alive again. What kind of miracle is that? You see, all of us, dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of working our way back to God. You know what this also means? It means that there's no one that's so far gone there outside the grace of God because they're dead just like you were. There's not such a thing as mostly dead. That's not, uh, that's not real. You're dead or you're not. And here, as Peter comes in, he says, Tabitha, it's time to get up. And she is back to life. But understand this with me. Life is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does he say to his disciples? John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so life is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, as we once were dead, we hear the good news that even though I am a sinner, even though you are a sinner, and you were born into that, you can't do enough good to raise yourself back to life. But then we hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus, how the Son of God came to be born, to live a sinless life, and then laid it down to be a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. To die the death that we deserve to live. To die so that we can live the life that he deserved to live. Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so today, I want to take a look at one more thing before we, before we wrap up. What happened when the church, these believers, these individuals, what happened when the gift of peace, the gift of healing, the gift of life was given through the gospel of Jesus? What happened in this first century, in these early churches? Watch with me. Verse number 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. You know what the, the, the goal of the gospel is? It's multiplication. Multiplication. It began all the way back in Genesis. Even as God created man and woman, he said, be fruitful and multiply. And then we come to the New Testament. And we find Jesus, the, the better Adam. We see this multiplication of the gospel begin to take place. As new life is being granted through him. We look at verse number 35 with me. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon, they saw him. They saw Aeneas. They saw how God had worked in his life. 
and they turned to the Lord. They turned to the Lord. Why? Because they saw what God did in Aeneas. When, God, when people see what God's doing in your life, what is, what's the response to it? What's the response to it? Because God is working in our life. The response ought to be, I'll have what they're having. I need what God is doing in their lives to happen in mine. And we find that many, all, in fact, it says all the residents turn to the Lord. How incredible. And in verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa, this healing of Tabitha. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon and Tanner. So we find many again believing in the Lord. You see, God desires to use your story so that other people can come to know Jesus. One of the most amazing things of all the scripture is that God chooses to use people, human beings. I ask myself this all the time. Why? Why? Because we're imperfect. We do dumb stuff. We say mean things. We're not always the most agreeable. We're not always, we don't always... Smell the best. I don't know. Like, we're just for people. Why, God? Why use us, warts and all? But then I reminded that when God uses weak people, when God uses people that are not sufficient of themselves, when God uses people that are, are even here as we see Saul, this former persecutor, we see Aeneas, this bedridden man, we see Tabitha, the dead lady, and God uses them. And you know who gets the glory when God uses the weak things of the world? Who does all the praise go back to? Can Saul say, look at me, I'm such a great guy. I only killed a couple thousand Christians. Can Aeneas say, oh, my strength, I raised myself up. Or Tabitha, I just breathed again. God did the work. And so when these things happen in our lives, because we are weak people, who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? God does. God does. And so we are recipients of these gifts of the gospel. We are recipients of the peace that comes with knowing Jesus, of the healing that's available to our brokenness, our pains, our hurts, how we can be made whole again, and the life that is found only in Jesus Christ. This morning, which of these things characterize your life? And which of these things, maybe they're absent. But today, that gift of the gospel is still offered. It can still be received. It can still be applied.